We've uh, been talking about uh, the subject of spiritual authority and dominion for the last several weeks, and we want to continue along that line tonight. We want to start with the scripture we've been using um, uh, for the entirety of this series, and that's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. If you want to get a head start on us, uh, you can also turn your Bibles to John chapter 10. Genesis 1, 26, uh, on the sixth day of creation, God's made everything that there is uh, to be made in the earth. He's made all the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and the trees and the grass and the flowers and the sky and everything that is. And he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Yet it is an undisputed fact, one of the great undisputed facts of Scripture that man was created to have dominion. God's original intent was for man to have dominion over all the works of his hands, everything that he created here on the earth. And God never changes, which means if that was God's original intent, it's his intent today. The Bible says that uh, that God made man after his image or in his image and after his likeness. I used to say that God made man as much like himself as he could. But what can't God do? Is there anything that God cannot do? Well, of course not. The Bible says with God all things are possible. God has all ability and all power. So when God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, he made man an exact duplication of himself by his own words. And he put man in the Garden of Eden. He gave him charge over the earth. He said to dress it and keep it. That means to guard and protect it. And the Bible says that he walked with man in the cool of the day, in the afternoon um, cool breeze he'd walk with man and talk with him and so forth now it's uh, I, I think we take a lot of things for granted and and fail to really think about what things were like and so many times i think we look at this as kind of a fairy tale and uh, and don't think about the specifics or the details like perhaps we should when god talked to man and gave him charge over the earth he told him to dress and keep the garden he didn't tell him, now watch out for those lions and tigers. Grizzly bears are big and tough. Man had no qualms, no misunderstanding about the fact that he was in charge. He knew clearly that he was made in the image of God. So if we use New Testament terms... For what God told man to do, how God instructed man concerning the garden, he literally told him, well, it's the equivalent, not literally, but it's the equivalent of, of God telling him, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Now, again, how did man know he had authority? How did man know he had dominion? If God gave him dominion and didn't give him instruction or didn't tell him what he had, then God would be unjust. And it would be foolish on God's part, and God's not foolish, to put man in the garden with the opportunity, the potential, to give away the authority to the enemy that God knew that he had without giving him instruction ahead of time, letting him know what he had, letting him know the ins and the outs of it. So when God made man, man had absolute authority here on the earth, doesn't mean that there weren't any enemies. The Garden of Eden is not 
a place where there weren't enemies or the potential for enemies. It's a place where man has authority over all the enemies that there are. I think that's instructive for us too. See, we think perfection is when there is no enemy to deal with. We think, oh, wouldn't it be great not to have a devil to contend with? Well, God's idea of things being very good is for you to know the authority that you have and not worry about the enemies that are there. Can you say amen? Well, we know what happened. Eve was deceived by Satan. Adam wasn't deceived, but he went along with disobeying the commandment of God, the one commandment that God gave them, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the, the consequence, he said, for in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. But they disobey the commandment, and so they die spiritually. They're separated from God, which is what spiritual death means. It means separation from God. So now the light goes out, so to speak. Whereas before the source of their life was the spirit of God that had been breathed in them. Now they continue to be an eternal spirit. Only there's no presence of God. There's no presence of God's spirit within them now. Well, God realizes that this is a condition that needs not to stand for eternity. So he blocks the path of the tree of life so that they can't go back and eat of the tree of life and stay that way forever. And so God is, in effect, locked out of his creation. He's lost fellowship with his man. He's lost fellowship with the one that's created like in his image and after his likeness. Doesn't mean you can't have contact with him, but the contact is on a different level than it ever was and ever intended to be. There's no fellowship like there was before. There's no union or commonality based on the spirit of God within that they had when he was created. So God basically takes his hand off the earth for a period of about 1,700 years. Ten generations between Adam and Noah. Very little contact, very little interaction between God and man during that time. And as a result, sin has its way and the earth becomes full of wickedness. So much so that God has to intervene and do something about it and so he sends the flood saves Noah spares Noah and his family and he makes a covenant with Noah that he'll never destroy the earth by water again and so he puts a rainbow in the sky as a token of that covenant now covenants are really interesting and important for us to realize the the real purpose behind them there's a lot of things about covenants that we can look at and there are legal aspects to them and and so forth but for me the important part of the covenants that God made with man have more to do with God trying to get back in legally have a legal means to get back in and interact with his creation with the man that he created he makes covenant with Abraham Uh, actually makes a couple of covenants with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, after Abraham has committed himself 
to follow God and only God and wouldn't take anything from the king of Sodom because he didn't want anybody to say that, that he had made him rich instead of God. God makes a covenant with him concerning the land of Israel. He said, I'll give you and your seed this land forever. A little bit further on in Genesis 17 and 18, God makes another covenant with Abraham. And this covenant has to do with his seed, his children. He promises Abraham children like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Well, this covenant, again, is God's way, means of interacting with man. Even though man is separated from him by spiritual death. He's got to have some legal way to do it. I'm going to use the word legal a lot. Because this is an important concept. And we'll see it over in John chapter 10. When Jesus talks about the legalities. Of coming into the earth and operating here on the earth. God's got to have a legal means. The devil did not take the authority, steal the authority from man in a legal manner, according to what Jesus said. He took it. He had the ability to do so, but only because Adam didn't exercise his authority as the ruler of the earth, the one that had dominion on the earth. So through the covenants, ratified or codified, Through the law of Moses, the covenant that God made with Abraham was God's way of using his power, his ability, his goodness, his character for the benefit of mankind. Now stop and think about this for a minute. The Bible says God is good and he's only good and only good things come from God. That means he's all good all the time. It means he's only good all the time. When God was locked out of his creation by spiritual death, brought on by man's sin in the Garden of Eden, God has no opportunity to be himself toward man. And that was the heart cry of God to interact with this man, the one that he created in his image, even though now he's fallen man. His heart cry had to have been to come back to a place where he can interact and have some means of fellowship. Certainly it wasn't fellowship on the same level as he had with Adam before the fall. But he's looking for some means of interaction and fellowship with the one that's made in his likeness. So he creates this covenant. Covenant is just a legal term for relationship. The covenant that God made with Abraham is the means, or uh, is, is God's work. Started to say an attempt, but it wasn't an attempt. It was successful. It was God's work to reestablish a relationship with man. Now, this covenant, in order to stand for eternity, had to be based on a legal means and legal foundation. Now, part of the legal foundation and covenant literally means. What's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Well, when you're in a covenant with God, that's a pretty good deal because God has everything and he can do anything. But in order for that covenant to stand the test of time, 
and not just be something that God would wink at and just say, well, I'm God, so I'm going to make it the way I want to, and devil, I don't care what you think about it. It had to be on a legal, legal basis, legal foundation. Well, part of the legal foundation means both sides have to be equally committed to one another. It's not enough for God to be wholly committed to man because he's righteous and good and desires to show his goodness toward man as the creator. Man has to be equally committed toward God. Well, there's only one way that you could put that to the test. And so in Genesis chapter 22, I believe it is, God tells Abraham to offer his only son Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice. This is the ultimate test of the covenant between God and man. Because unless man is willing to offer his son to God, God has no legal right to offer his son Jesus to be the substitute for mankind. Abraham holds up his end. He offers Isaac as the sacrifice, raises the knife, finished the job. The Bible says Abraham has developed faith to such a degree at that point that he knows that God has promised that Isaac, his son, would be the one through whom the seed would come and number as the stars of the sky and so forth, as God promised. So Abraham believes that if necessary, God will raise Isaac from the dead. At the last moment, the angel stops him and says, since I've seen that you're willing to offer him, there's no need to go through with it. And so there's a ram stuck in the thicket there, and the angel points it out, and they offer that as a sacrifice instead. And God says, because you haven't withheld your son from me, now the covenant relationship is legal. In such a way that I can bring about that which I planned from the beginning of the world. The foundations of the world. To offer my son as the redeemer of mankind. Now look with me over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Remember John's gospel is the last one that was written. And it was written many years after the other three gospels. And it seems to me, you judge this for yourself, but it seems to me like John, some 60 years after Jesus is raised from the dead, uh, probably at least 45 years since the last gospel was written, the the last of the other three was written. John seems to me to be filling in the blanks on some things that the other three gospels don't tell us. There aren't a whole lot of things that the other three Gospels cover that John does cover. But there's a whole lot of stuff that John tells us about that the other three don't. So it's almost like he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to fill in the blanks or give us additional information to give us the full picture of what was going on or what happened in Jesus' three years of ministry. And beginning in John chapter 10, Jesus has just healed a blind man And the question comes up about his authority and who he is and and so forth. He reveals himself as the son of God to the blind man who was healed. The previous chapter. And then Jesus begins to speak of himself and his work. 
Beginning in verse 1, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him. For they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spoke. Now, Jesus is telling us about the legal means or foundation for the authority that he's exercising here on the earth. The sheepfold has to be the earth. The Bible says in Psalms that we're the sheep of his pasture. So the sheepfold has to be the earth. So Jesus is saying... I'm different than anybody that's ever spoken to you. I'm different than any other God you served or God you worshipped or whatever. Because I've come in legally. He's contrasting himself with the devil. The devil came in not through birth, not because he was born of a woman, not because he has the right as a human being to have dominion here on the earth, He climbed up in a a different way. He climbed up through deception and stole from Adam the authority that God gave him, the dominion that he had over the earth. And this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the porter represents God in this. He's saying God has a legal right to give to me and to do for me according to his will and according to his plan and purpose because I'm born of a woman. I left my estate in heaven. The Bible says that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man. That's why the virgin birth is such an important issue, folks. It's not an important issue for people that don't understand authority. But it was a huge issue for Jesus. Jesus is making the point very emphatically that anybody else that's ever come to try to show them some other way to God, that means the worship of Baal, is considered to be a thief and a robber. That means the Babylonian worship, the Egyptian worship, all the worship of different gods in different types, sacrifices and so forth, is the work of the same thief and robber who climbs up some other way. That's the point Jesus is making. He's saying, I came through the door. The door he's talking about is being born of a woman. That's why it was so important For God to find Mary, who would willingly accept his plan to impregnate her by the Holy Ghost overshadowing her so that Jesus could be born of a woman. Now remember, part of the curse upon the earth, or part of the curse that came as a result of man's disobedience, he said that, that there would be enmity between the woman and Satan. And her seed... And his seed. Well who is her seed? So often we look at that as just being Jesus himself. Jesus being the only one that God was talking about. And he certainly includes Jesus. But the seed of a woman is every person that is born into this earth. Satan becomes the enemy of mankind. And will be the enemy of mankind until God disposes of him once and for all. 
So when Mary acquiesces to the will of God and says, be it unto me, even as you've spoken, now God has permission, a legal right to carry out his plan to bring his son into the earth. Now, folks, these are things that the devil didn't understand. I'm not sure he has a clear understanding of it now. But on the night that Jesus was born and the angels appeared in the heavens and singing the the hallelujah chorus or whatever they were singing, praises and glory to God, the devil didn't understand what that was about. He didn't understand the significance of that. Now, when Jesus came upon the scene and started growing up, the Bible tells us in John chapter 2 about his first miracle where he turned water into wine. Mary acts in a different way, very strange, because she comes to Jesus expecting him to do something about it, about them being out of wine. What's he supposed to do? Is that how you as a parent would act concerning your kids? Go somewhere and they run out of food or wine or water or whatever it is. You go to your kid and say, hey, they're out of food. They're out of stuff. The implication is she's asking, what are you going to do about it? And he gets kind of exasperated with her and says, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. But then God moves upon him. But in the meantime, even after being rebuffed, she turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Why would she say that? What would cause her to respond in that way? Except that she's seen him do some pretty unusual, shall we say, or supernatural things throughout his life. The Bible tells us after Jesus is anointed by the Holy Ghost, when he's baptized by John in the Jordan River, Jesus is immediately led into the wilderness, not to be tempted of the devil, but where he was tempted of the devil after 40 days of fasting. He went out there to prepare himself for the work of the ministry for the next three years. And the devil always comes when you commit yourself to God. He always comes and tries to get you off track. Now, the devil's tried to kill Jesus. He's known there was something special about him from the beginning. He had Herod kill all the children from two years of age and younger, trying to kill Jesus. But Jesus was warned by, Jesus' parents were warned of an angel to take him into Egypt for the time being. There have been several attempts on his life. So the devil knew something about Jesus. He knew something was unusual. But now he's living his life up until age 30, not really causing the devil any problem whatsoever. Now, let me, let me make another comment about covenant. The reason God made a covenant with Abraham and fulfilled it in Jesus. What was the purpose for God making a covenant with Abraham? Well, we know God's purpose was to be able to, make, to, to create a legal manner for him to bring his son into the earth to redeem mankind. But can we not also realize that his purpose on, for, for Abraham's benefit was to overcome the curse of the law, the curse that had come upon mankind? In other words, to destroy the works of the devil 
in every measure or manner that he could prior to the Redeemer doing the work once and for all. So the covenant that God made with Abraham destroyed the curse of poverty first and foremost because God made him rich. And Jesus, as the fulfiller of the covenant, he said himself, the prince of this world cometh and has nothing in me. The Bible says in James chapter 3 that if a man is able to keep his tongue and stumble not, in word or offend not in word he's a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body well since Jesus was perfect in that sin that means he never stumbled in his words well what would be the result according to what God's promises contain what would be the result of a person that walked according to the law of God without ever making a mistake well certainly the blessing of Abraham would be his this is what his mother has witnessed all 30 years of his life up to that point at the wedding at Cana. She's seen everything that he said come to pass. She's seen the hand of God upon him. Of course, she knows that he was born without a, a father's influence or interaction just between her and the Holy Ghost. She may be the only person outside of Jesus that does know that as far as everybody else is concerned. And so she's seen supernatural things, perhaps even miraculous things happen at Jesus' words. So she tells the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Because what he says works. Now, as I mentioned before, Jesus is tempted of the wilderness, uh, tempted of the devil after 40 days in the wilderness. And the Bible tells us how Jesus overcomes that temptation. We have a tendency, it seems to me, to read this story about Jesus answering the devil by saying on three occasions in, in response to each of the three temptations, it is written. We have a tendency to think that he just started doing that after he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. But folks, I would submit to you, he's been doing this all of his life. This may be the first time he's come face to face with the devil. But he's not lived 30 years on the earth without facing some kind of temptation. And since he was a perfect man, that means he didn't stumble or transgress in his words. So it means he's been living his life by this same principle. Responding to temptations by saying it is written. By saying what the word of God says. See, that's the only way the devil can't have something in you. It's the only way you didn't have something in him. The only way that he cannot have something in you is if the words of our mouth are in line with what God's word says. So Jesus turns the water into wine. God moves upon him to do something about it. His time is come. Apparently Mary was prompted by the Holy Ghost in this situation before Jesus was which is a remarkable thought in and of itself. But Jesus tells them to fill the water pots with water and bear it to the governor of the feast. And between filling the water pots with water and when they get to the governor of the feast, the water turns into wine. Miracles begin to happen. Now, why do miracles begin to happen? 
Jesus has already been living a supernatural life all 30 years of his existence. His mother Mary is a, test, uh, is a testament to that by her response at the wedding in Cana. So what is the turning point for Jesus? Well, Jesus said that his authority was because he was born of a woman. Look with me. We'll, uh, we'll come back to John chapter 10, but I want you to look with me real quick to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, I think it's verse 26. Jesus is going to explain the parable in John chapter 10, so I want to come back to that. John chapter 5 and verse 26. Jesus said, For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now I want you to compare that with what we know about Adam before the fall. The Bible speaks of Adam as being the first Adam. Adam in the Garden of Eden being the first Adam. Jesus as being the second Adam. Of the same type, of the same kind. Jesus explains it even further. He says, for as the Father has life in himself, I've got the same life. In other words, he's saying of himself, I'm made in his image and after his likeness. Jesus was in the same condition as Adam before the fall in many respects. And I don't know if that means in every respect, but in many respects, he hasn't been tainted by sin. The life that's in Jesus is the life of God, the spirit of God himself. Just as it was with Adam before the fall. The fellowship with God that Jesus has is unbroken and pure even as it was when Adam walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. He has a relationship and the benefits of a relationship that no man on the earth has experienced since Adam fell. So notice he says, for as the father has life in himself, so is he given to the son to have life in himself. Now notice verse 27, and has given him authority to execute judgment also Because he's the son of man. Notice it's not because he's the son of God. See, Jesus lived 30 years on the earth and never did a miracle. That doesn't mean he didn't didn't have miracles. Doesn't mean he didn't experience miracles. Mary seems to allude to that in John chapter 2. But the things that have happened, the supernatural things that have happened in his life have not been to benefit other people. But have been benefits to him because he's kept the law of Moses in a perfect manner. Because the curse of the law has been broken by his keeping of the law of Moses. Well, when did the miracles start happening to benefit others? When he was anointed by John in the Jordan River. See, folks, if Jesus was operating on the earth in his three years of ministry on the earth, doing miracles and healings and delivering people and so forth, if he was doing those things because he was the son of God, then why did he need to be anointed of John and the Holy Ghost come upon him? But in fact, Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, goes to his own hometown of Nazareth and declares among those that have heard that he's done miracles in Capernaum already, it's early in his ministry, but he's still been to, he's still known as the miracle worker uh, early on. 
He reads where the, the scripture says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to do this stuff. And then he tells them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying what Isaiah wrote is talking about me. Well, the people got angry. They didn't want to hear anything about it. Took him out to the brow of the cliff and wanted to throw him off, but he passed through the midst of them. Jesus said himself, no man takes my life. I lay it down if I want to, and if I want to, I can take it up again. Well, how in the world would he have authority so that nobody could take his life? By keeping the, by keeping the law of Moses in a perfect manner. I think we fail to understand a lot of times that even where the old covenant is concerned, the power of God that comes to bear through obedience to God's word. And that doesn't compare in any manner whatsoever with what we have in Jesus. So Jesus is anointed by the Holy Ghost to do the work of God to benefit others. Now, here's the thing I want you to see, and forgive me for taking so long to get there. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus' authority on the earth was not because he was the son of God. Jesus' authority on the earth was not because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. Jesus' authority on the earth was because he was born of Mary. But the power to do the work of God on behalf of others came as a result of the anointing of the Holy Ghost when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. In other words, he had authority by being born of woman. He had power because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. There's something about that statement that I haven't seen yet. And I keep looking at it and I keep saying it and I keep meditating on it. But I'm convinced of one thing. If we come to that realization, if our eyes are open to what that really means, our troubles with the devil are over. Jesus had no devil problem because he had authority. He had no problem with the devil in his own life because he walked in obedience to the law of Moses. His authority came because he was born of Mary and he operated in the dominion that God intended for man to have. The miracle working power was a result of the power of the Holy Ghost that came upon him when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now turn back to John chapter 10. I told you we wanted to, to get to the explanation of, the, of what Jesus said. So let's do that now. John chapter 10. We'll read in verse 6 again. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, when he speaks of the door... He's talking about two different things. In verse 1, he talks about the door being natural birth, being born of a woman. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he can't see the kingdom of God. Well, born of water is talking about natural birth. 
born of the spirit means the new birth jesus continues that same line of thinking he's consistent in in the way that he presents things he said i came through the door so i'm here legally and then he tells them that i'm the door i am the door of the sheep all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers anything anybody any any system that claimed to be the way to god before him is a thief and a robber a byproduct of satan who is the ultimate thief and robber because it's only by being born of a woman that you can have authority on the earth to lead the others to god and that's what he's saying remember that was jesus purpose for being here on the earth Number one, to destroy the works of the devil. We know how that took place by dying for the, man, the sins of mankind. Jesus has one thing in mind for the entirety of his ministry. And that is the purpose that he came to the earth for to bear away the sin of mankind. In other words, to trade his life for the spiritual death that came upon mankind because of Adam's sin. So he says, I'm the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, notice this, he shall be saved. So that door's got to be talking about the new birth. That door's got to be talking about the door to salvation because salvation is the result. So he's saying, I came through the door of natural childbirth, being born of a woman, but I am the door of salvation. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life. Notice he didn't come that you might have hardship. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, let me ask you a question, folks. Is the abundant life not the kind of the same kind of life that Jesus has experienced on the earth for himself. See Jesus lived his first 30 years. Well he lived throughout the entirety of his life. 33 years without any need of salvation. Because he kept the law of Moses perfectly. So therefore what did he have? He had abundant life. There was no lack there was no situation where God was not at his, his uh, right hand to help him. There was no situation that the, the power of God would not come to bear on his behalf. He's not the one that needed saving. We are. So he's saying, I'm come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. I'm come that, so that you can have the same kind of life that the Father has, which is the same kind of life that I have. I am come that you might have life. Now, what does that life include? Well, certainly it includes authority. Certainly it includes the authority that Adam had before he fell in the Garden of Eden. That's the same authority that Jesus has to be operating in, by Mary's testimony at least, in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. She's watched such authority in his life where there is no circumstance that ever kept him down, no circumstance that ever hindered him or held him back, to such a degree that she tells others, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. 
what he says always works. So you do whatever he says. So the abundant life that he came to give us has to include man's restored place of authority. Or else it's not abundant life. I am the good shepherd. Verse 11. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Skip down with me to verse 14. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. And and am known of mine. As the father knoweth me. Even so know I the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice. He's talking about the Gentiles. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. He's saying the father loves me because I've committed myself to do his will on the earth. Jesus knew his purpose. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Now, I want you to turn with me over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, when Jesus is facing his betrayal, his time for the the crucifixion events to begin. And again, this is John telling us. I think it's instructive that it's John that's referring to these things, filling in the blanks for us, completing the picture. Um. Now let's start in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. And others said that an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. And notice verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Look with me over to Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Being born of a woman, in other words. That through death, talking about his death on the cross, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now I want you to notice what it says. It's saying specifically that Jesus being born of a woman, coming in the door, the legal manner of becoming the savior of mankind. Jesus entering in through the door of being born of natural childbirth, born of a woman. It enabled him. It gave him authority to execute judgment upon the earth, according to John 5, 26 to 27. Here it says, that enabled him through his death to destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Now what does the word destroy mean? 
It cannot mean do away with. Because Satan still exists. So destroy doesn't mean annihilate. What does destroy mean? Well, let me read it to you from Strong's Concordance. Let me read you the definition from Strong's Concordance. The word destroy means to render entirely idle or useless. To abolish, cease, deliver, destroy, do away, make of no effect, put to naught, put away, make void. In other words, the Bible is saying that Jesus, through the authority that he had on the earth as a man, not as the son of God, but as a man, the authority that he had on the earth as a man enabled him to render the devil useless, ineffective. Remember when Jesus was raised from the dead, Matthew 28, verse 18, I believe it is, Jesus appears to the disciples and says, all hail. Hi, guys. All power is given unto me. Literally, the word power is the word authority. All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Well, what authority did he not have here on the earth? The Bible says that Jesus identified himself in Revelation as the one who had the keys of hell and death. Prior to his death on the cross, he didn't have the keys of hell and death. But when he rendered the devil useless, ineffective, think about that. The devil that everybody has so much trouble with has been rendered useless and ineffective. One translation says paralyzed. He's been rendered useless and ineffective. Why? Because now Satan has no authority. He has no authority. He doesn't have any longer the authority that he gained from Adam to separate man from God. That's what the keys of hell and death really mean. I think we have a wrong notion of the devil. We think that he has the ability to go in and out of hell. When the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says that that there'll come a time when he'll be cast into the lake of fire and destroyed forever. He'll suffer, suffer eternal torments and he won't be able to escape. The devil doesn't have access to hell. What he has access to is deception. And it's only by that deception that he's able to separate you from the things of God. It's only by deception that he's able to hold men in bondage and in spiritual death. But Jesus has broken the power of the devil to maintain that hold. That's why it's so important for us to preach the gospel. That's why it's so important for us to preach the good news. Now, authority was an important thing in Jesus' ministry even before he went to the cross. Matthew chapter 7 says that after Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them how to hold or or the manner in which to hold authority. He taught them that man had authority even before he went to the cross. They were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them how to hold authority. He taught them that man had authority. We have more authority now that Jesus has stripped the devil of the keys of hell and death than man ever had before Jesus went to the cross. But it was such an important issue. It was such an important subject with Jesus that Jesus would teach that man had authority.
And now through his death, he's rendered useless, totally ineffective. The power of the devil to hold you in bondage. Let me show you one last scripture. We'll close for the evening. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The rest of the verse says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. But you'll find if you do some study that that's a phrase that belongs to verse 4, not to verse 1. It seems to be more than the translators were able to accept. And so they moved the phrase from verse 4 to verse 1. Because they understood, or they supposed, that condemnation only ends when you live right. But he's not talking about living right. He's talking about making Jesus your Savior. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, period. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. It's not going to make you free if you live right. It has already made you free from the law of sin and death. Now, I would submit to you, folks, that the law of sin and death is a summarization of the works of the devil. Anything that the devil does, anything the devil can do, anything the devil has done is going to fall under the category of the law of sin and death. And the Bible says the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which belongs to everybody that's made Jesus their Lord and Savior, has already set you free from the law of sin and death. It's not going to set you free if you live right. It's not going to set you free if you do the right things. It's not going to set you free if you act good to your neighbor or your husband or your wife or whatever. Those are all good things and we should aspire to do them. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free because you made Jesus your Lord and Savior. It sets you free from the law of sin and death. 4 verse 3. For what the law could not do, talking about the law of Moses... In that it was weak through the flesh. Nothing wrong with the law. Jesus kept the law. And operated in all the blessings of Abraham as a result of it. But the problem with the law is that we couldn't keep it. Mankind couldn't keep it. The only reason Jesus was able to keep it is because he wasn't born of a man. He was born of a woman in the Holy Ghost. He didn't have. He wasn't born into sin like the rest of us were. That's, again, that's why the virgin birth was so important. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not as sinful flesh, but it looked like it. it. looked like he had the same flesh as the rest of us, but he didn't. And for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Now, please notice that phrase, condemned sin in the flesh. Remember, we looked over at John chapter 12, verse 31, where Jesus said, now is the hour come. The prince of this world cometh, and judgment is passed upon the earth. Let me read it correctly instead of misquoting it. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. How is it that the judgment has come? What judgment came? What did God judge? God judged sin in the flesh. Literally, we could substitute spiritual death. God judged spiritual death. When Jesus died on the cross, he died as the substitute for spiritual death. He died as the substitute for Adam's sin. He died as the substitute for your sin. He died for the substitute of the sins of mankind. 
He condemned, did away with once and for all the sins of the flesh or sin in the flesh. That's why the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free. Now, folks, I would submit to you, and I'll I'll close with this, but I would submit to you that if you're anything like me, the main way, the main method of attack that the enemy has is to question and refute your authority because of the mistakes that you've made. And there's this notion that we have i'm not sure that i would go so far as to say the devil will even give up ground on this but most of us have the idea that if we lived right and we're able to overcome sin in our lives we were over able to overcome bad or sinful behavior then we could operate in authority but the point that i'm trying to make tonight throughout all the things that i've said is that your authority is not based on your lifestyle Your authority is based on two things. Number one, you were born of a woman here on the earth. That gives you authority. Secondly, you're born of the Spirit of God. Being born of a woman of natural childbirth puts you in a position to enter into God's original intent for man to have dominion on the earth. Being born of the Spirit of God puts you back in a position that Adam had before he fell in the Garden of Eden. You're now reunited with God. There's a union of spirit and a fellowship with God that Adam had and that Jesus had. It's the same life that Jesus had here on the earth. It's the same spirit of God. Jesus doesn't have one spirit of God and you've got a lower level. It's the same life. It's the same spirit. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has already made you free from the law of sin and death. Whatever issues we have in life that we think the devil is our problem in, we already have authority in that area. And the devil has already been rendered ineffective, null and void. Therefore, We're in exactly the same situation as Adam was before the fall. Where God instructs us, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It wasn't based on Adam's experience. It was based on Adam's creator. And it was communicated to him the same way it's communicated to us. That is by the word of God. Say this after me. The law of the spirit of life. In Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. He has rendered ineffective and useless him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Satan has no authority in my life. For I am born of God. The same life that is in the Father God and in Jesus his Son dwells in me. I have authority over all the works of the enemy in the name of Jesus.
Folks, if that ever dawns on us, we'll change the world. We can acknowledge that it's true. But I think it's an important thing for us to pray that our spiritual eyes would be open so that we'd see it. Because once we see it, oh, dear Lord, once we see it, it'll change us into another person. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you for the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. Lord, when Jesus was here on the earth, he told his disciples, Rejoice not that the devils are subject to us, but rather rejoice that our names are written down in heaven. We rejoice that our names are written down in heaven. We rejoice that the life of God dwells in us. We rejoice in the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. That's what we rejoice in, Father. We recognize that we have authority over all the works of the enemy. But we rejoice in the life of God. Open our eyes, Father. Give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. That we would see and know these things to be true. Not just to agree with them with our heads. But to really see them in our hearts. We ask in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.